text of our sermon tonight comes from Joshua chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. Joshua 27 and 8. So they appointed Kadesh in Galilee, in the mountains of Naphtali, Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, and Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron, in the mountains of Judah. And on the other side of the Jordan, by Jericho eastward, they assigned Bezer in the wilderness on the plain from the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth and Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan and Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. Let us pray. God, who didst of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets, and has spoken unto us in these last days by thy Son, speak to us now in thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May thy Holy Spirit be with us now as a spirit of light and life. May Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel this night. And may grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and of Jesus our Lord. For his name's sake, amen. Well, tonight we'll be looking at the first city of refuge listed in our text. And what we'll specifically be looking at is the gospel significance of the place, both in its name and as a foreshadowing of Christ. Our outline this evening and for the following five evenings will run as the, be the same. Number one, the word's meaning Number two, its theological significance. And number three, the New Testament fulfillment. So the words meaning, first point. I'm sure we're all aware that names have meanings. This isn't really a big deal to us because most of our names are based on other languages. My name, Andrew, is the anglicized form of a Greek name. Most common English names are actually of Greek or Germanic origin. And then, of course, there are hundreds of biblical names. In older times, names were in the language spoken by the family. In other words, had I been born in uh, ancient Greece, my name wouldn't be Andrew, it would be Andreas. And when my parents named me that, they would have understood what that word meant when they did so. In fact, I was just named after a pop singer, not because of the meaning of the word. You will find this very often in the Bible that when people give names, they express the meaning of the name as well. When Hannah names her baby, the Bible says, she called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked for him from the Lord. In Genesis 35, we read, Leah bore a son and said, now this time my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name shall be called Levi. Again, she bore a son and said, now I will praise the Lord. And therefore, she called his name Judah. The significance of these statements by Leah is that Levi is wordplay on a root word that means joined or attached, while Judah derives from the word meaning praise. So when Leah gave these names to her sons, she was expressing a desire. In the case of Levi, she was praying that Jacob would finally love her truly. Every time Jacob called his little son, Levi, come here, he would be reminded of the emotional distance that he had placed between himself and Leah. Maybe yet another son would finally win him over and he would be joined to Leah. In the case of Judah, 
Leah was expressing her true desire to praise God for the blessing of another covenant child. She chose names for her children because of the meanings of those names. The names were actual words in the language she spoke. We're generally not like that today. When we give names, we give names because we, we like the sound or because the name has a history in our family. The name Philip, for instance, is a combination of the Greek words phileo, which means love, and hippos, which means horse. So the name Philip means lover of horses. There are no doubt a lot of men named Philip who don't like horses. And very few of us have names that are English words. I mean, occasionally you'll find someone named Hope or Faith. But even then, the names were chosen mostly because mom and dad liked the sound of the name. The meaning of the word wasn't really a consideration. And is there anything more ridiculous than an atheist named Faith? Now, we've said all that to say this. Names in the Bible have meanings. And those meanings are significant. The names were given for specific reasons. And because the names are actual words used in the language spoken by these people, the names evoke certain ideas. And that was exactly the point. And so it is with the names of the cities of refuge. They speak of what the believer has in Christ. And there is much significance to be observed in the names of the cities with application to Christ, our refuge. Individually, each name shows forth some particular feature of the character of Christ. But when the, the definition of each of the names of the six cities of refuge are put together and taken as a whole, they illustrate the sufficiency of Christ in his work of providing refuge to meet all the needs of all of his people. So, for the first of the six cities, Kadesh. The name Kadesh is a form of the Hebrew word Kodesh, which means holy. The word holy has two primary meanings. The first, the one that springs immediately to our minds, is that of moral perfection. The other meaning refers to the quality of being completely other or of being set apart. Those two meanings are actually closely related. God is holy because he is completely other. There is no other being like him. God is not the best specimen of his particular type of being. The Lord thy God is one. And the chief expression of his being completely other is his absolute moral perfection. While holiness does denote absolute moral purity, it's also an expression of something that is so hard to put into words that the men in the Bible don't even try to express it. They merely express their reaction to it, and it is this being completely other. So in Genesis 28, when Jacob wakes from his dream of the ladder to heaven, he names the place Bethel, which means house of God. And the text tells us that he was afraid, and he said, how fearsome is this place. When God appears to Moses in the burning bush, Exodus 3, 6 tells us that Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look on God. When Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord, he cried out, woe is me for I am undone. Even the very angels who themselves cry, holy, 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 cover their faces 
in the presence of the holy God whom they worship. The same thing is seen in Luke chapter 5 when Peter exclaims, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The two ideas are seen throughout the Old Testament, particularly in the service of the tabernacle. Various things are made for the service, such as oil, incense, lamps, tables, and the clothing for the priests. And when God gives the the recipes or dimensions or instructions for making these things, he adds a strict warning every time that these things are only for him. And God designates every one of these things as holy. And anyone who makes one of these things for his own private use is to be cut off from his people. Now, technically, that would mean excommunication. Practically, it may very well have meant a death sentence. The holiness of the oil for the tabernacle lamps or of the incense or of the priest's robes was the holiness of being set apart for a special purpose. But that special purpose had reference to the morally pure worship of God. And also, God describes the life that he calls his servants to as holy. So it's actually a very natural thing to associate moral purity with the word holy. We now come to our second point, the theological significance. And what I mean by that is how this word shaped Old Testament theology specifically in relation to the promised Christ. Now, a minute ago, I said that it's natural to associate moral purity with the word holy. That's why most of us would have a very hard time explaining the difference between the words holy and righteous. Both words suggest the the notion of moral uprightness or rectitude. Both imply separation from sin and evil. Now, scholars might debate whether or not the Bible uses these words interchangeably. But the ideas that these words represent are certainly interchangeable. You can't think of a single case where you could refer to something as holy but not righteous or as righteous but not holy. They may not be strict one-to-one synonyms, but their meanings are very closely related. And it should be clear to everyone here that the words holy and righteous are two of the most common words in Scripture. Hardly a reference is made to God where one of these words isn't used. Kadesh means holy. The one who sought refuge in Kadesh was being made to recognize that he was taking shelter in a place of holiness or righteousness. Now, throughout the Scriptures, God is said to dwell in holiness. Deuteronomy 26.15, look down from your holy habitation. Psalm 68.5, a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows is God in his holy habitation. Isaiah 63.15, look down from heaven and see from your habitation holy and glorious. Jeremiah 25.30, the Lord will roar from on high and utter his voice from his holy habitation. And the passage we read earlier from Zechariah 2 verse 13, be silent all flesh before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. Because God dwells in holiness, his house must be holy. Everything ordained for his worship was designated as holy. 
You know, the priests wore a head covering with a golden plate on the front, which read holiness to the Lord. Because God is a holy God, everything that belongs to him, including his people, are holy. And therefore we read, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Again we read, and you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. Now that passage from Leviticus 20 verse 26 captures both meanings of the word holy. It conveys the idea of separation, for it tells us that our holiness consists, in the first place, in being separated by God unto God, and in the second place, our holiness consists in conformity to His will. Now think about the ramifications. You are in need of refuge, and you must go to a place called holy. You are anything but holy, and therefore you are being taught a theological lesson. To be saved from your sins, you must take refuge in one that is holy. Now that is not a strained, overwrought interpretation. To a Hebrew speaker, this would have been the natural implication of using the word kadesh. The word means holy. So you would have said, I need shelter from the avenger of blood who is a picture of God's wrath and curse against sin. And where can I get such refuge? Only in a place of holiness. Now even though Christ was centuries in the future when Kadesh was appointed as a city of refuge, God's people were being taught a very important theological lesson. They were taught that Christ is the refuge from the wrath of God against sin. These are the words of what the Bible calls the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. Only God is holy. The Old Testament repeatedly calls Christ the Holy One of God. God is the only one who is intrinsically holy. Whatever holiness a child of God may have, it is derivative, meaning it derives from God, and it's always polluted by his own sinful nature. God alone is holy with a self-existent and self-derived holiness. So the person who recognizes his need of holiness as a shield from the wrath of God must also recognize that Christ is the only such refuge. And that brings us to our third point, the New Testament fulfillment. How is Christ Kadesh? How does he fulfill this city of refuge? Well, first, let's go back to the meaning of the word. Kadesh means holy. And as the city of Kadesh was a refuge for the unclean and unholy sinner, Jesus is the refuge for the unclean and unholy sinner. Kadesh means holy or righteous. Jesus is the Holy One of God who according to 1 Corinthians 1, 31, 30 and 31 is made unto us righteousness and sanctification. That he who boasts may boast in the Lord. Kadesh implies 
that in the Redeemer, we have a sanctuary of holiness. He is the refuge for the unclean and the unholy. The holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ is the only hope of the sinful. Not one stain of sin polluted his holy human nature. Jesus never could have saved us unless he had been glorious in holiness. If he had had one sin in him, you and I would be lost forever. Question 56 of our catechism summarizes this doctrine beautifully. It asks, what believest thou concerning the forgiveness of sins? Answer, that God for the sake of Christ's satisfaction will no more remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature against which I have to struggle all my life long, but will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. The very righteousness of Christ, His flawless obedience to the law of God in thought, word, and deed is counted to the believer who seeks refuge in Him. This is the name by which He will be called, the Lord our righteousness. Now one of the cornerstone doctrines of the Christian faith is the imputed righteousness of Christ. As our catechism puts it, God of mere grace grants and imputes to me the perfect righteousness of Christ as if I never had had nor committed any sin, but had fully, perfectly fulfilled all the obedience that Christ has accomplished for me. Kadesh teaches us that when we come to Christ, He gives us His righteousness and forgives all our sins. For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, says 2 Corinthians 5.21. Colossians 2.13 and 14 reads, And you, being dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all your trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Kadesh teaches us that the unrighteous can only find refuge in the righteousness of Christ. Philippians 3.9 says, Not having my own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God, which is by faith. In Romans 3, we read, But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and upon all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by His grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness, because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed, to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Fleeing to the city of refuge demonstrated one's faith in the righteousness of God and in the grace of God. God provided shelter from wrath 
the person who either didn't see his guilt as deserving of wrath or who thought he was smart enough to skirt the judgment on his own, that man justly perished in his sin. But the one who fled to the righteousness of Christ, the one who fled to Kadesh, was saved. Kadesh reminds us that the only hiding place for the guilty sinner is the finished work of Christ upon the accursed tree. Only there are the unclean made holy, for only he who is clean can cleanse. The angels nearest to the throne of Jesus exclaim, Holy, holy, holy. In the 12th chapter of his gospel, John tells us that Jesus is the God upon his throne whom Isaiah saw. John writes, These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him. Jesus is so holy that the holy angels themselves can do nothing but repeat, Holy, holy, holy in his presence. Kadesh tells us that this is the Jesus unto whom we flee for refuge. Even demons were compelled to cry out, We know who you are, the Holy One of God. The ancient sacrificial rituals typified Christ's holiness when they offered a lamb without blemish. The prophets proclaimed Christ's holiness when they called him the righteous branch. And Paul calls Jesus holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. When Jesus was on earth, he challenged his bitterest enemies. Who among you can convict me of sin? When he returns in glory to judge the quick and the dead, we will find him proclaiming as his name, the Holy One, the Amen. When Jesus, our Kadesh, was conspired against by Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel, Peter refers to him as thy holy child, Jesus. 18 or 19 times in Romans, Paul uses the expression, which means the righteousness of God. And he uses that to describe the righteousness by which the believer is justified. And this righteousness of God is precisely that. God's very own inherent righteousness. This is the only righteousness that can cut the mustard. This is the only righteousness that can be accepted before the judgment seat of God. And praise God, this very righteousness of God is the righteousness of everyone who by faith seeks refuge in Christ. Truly He is the Lord our righteousness. In Romans chapter 10, Paul writes, For they being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end, meaning the point, the aim of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. And a few verses later, Paul says, For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus is our Kadesh. He is our city of refuge. He is the Lord, our righteousness. Let us cling to him always. 
Cling to him and his perfect obedience as our sole righteousness in the sight of God. Let us pray.